morning. Um, very glad that you're here with us today. Um, if you have your Bibles, um, you can open them to John 8. And that's where we will be camping out. Uh, I'm just going to get right to it. John 8, starting in verse 1 to 11, should be on the screen. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you um, in a time when many of our hearts are heavy. Oh, Lord, we come to you in a time where it seems that the level of angst and anxiety and anger has risen to a high pitch in our culture. God, and we ask for the mercy and the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be Christians, to be people who bear the name of Jesus and extend his love to all. Have mercy on us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. It's gonna get a little heavy, so just be ready. Um, this is such an interesting event in the life of Jesus. There's three main players. So let's just look at the text. There's Jesus, there's the woman, and there are the Pharisees. Those are the three actors on the stage. And we're told from the get-go that the Pharisees are not authentic in their questioning. These guys are trying to entrap Jesus, and Jesus knows it. Uh, they're trying to entrap him so that they can establish in others the same hate and contempt and violence that they feel towards Jesus. They're setting him up in a no-win scenario so that they can gather others 
to a place of condemnation towards the person of Jesus. They're creating fodder, right? On several levels to say to other people, see, this dude's a joke. He's not the real deal. He's not what you think he is. So you have then this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. That takes some planning. You might be able to catch some people in the same room, you know, or like talking or like flirting. But to be around when the act is going down takes some planning, takes some conniving, takes some hiding and waiting. But nonetheless, she's caught in the act. The picture I get, now this is my own imagination, okay? But the picture I get is this woman covered with only what she could grab as an angry mob of holy men rush in the room and drag her out into the streets. I imagine she's a bit bruised up from the struggle, maybe a little bloody nose, I don't know, terrified, right, in the streets. And we often miss the nuance of the clear tension here. And so I mean. We read it. We read stories like this with our minds already made up about who's the bad guy. Who's the bad guy? Pharisees are the bad guy, right? And this woman, we're supposed to feel sorry for her. And, you know, and sometimes we can even romanticize her, her plight of, oh, she didn't know better. And, you know, we're supposed to have compassion and she's helpless. But we miss the nuance if we quickly skip over the fact that this woman is guilty, she was caught in the act. There's no getting around it. Her guilt is clearly evident, right? She betrayed her wedding vows. It's the betrayal of the highest order, y'all. It's destructive. Heart leaves a wake of broken relations. There's a reason it's in the Big Ten, right? Like God takes this very seriously, right? Death. What's the context here? Death was commanded by Mosaic law according to Deuteronomy 22, okay? Although, according to some historical sources and even others that we know that we're gonna talk about later, it seems that that penalty of death, of being stoned to death, was not often actually carried out, okay? But rather, historical sources are gonna say, rather divorce and financial restitution from the guilty man. But a big question for me in all this story is, where's the dude? Where's the guy? Like they just left him and grabbed, I mean, what? I don't understand, that's one, I don't have the answer to that question. The second question that comes up is this. How exactly were they trying to entrap Jesus? Like what, what, what how would his answer entrap him? Does anyone wonder that? Like what were they exactly trying to do? So we can at least know a little bit about this second one. It seems that they were trying to trap Jesus in, in two ways, okay? First, Jesus's, um, reputation was that of a merciful, forgiving, gracious teacher. Okay, so, okay, what about the person who undeniably deserves judgment, Jesus? What about that person? What about, what about a person who has done horrible things and they really deserve it? And we all know we, he, they really deserve it because there she is half naked in the middle of the streets. We caught her in the act. She deserves it. What about that person? You're merciful towards that person? What if that person legally deserves wrath? There's no doubt about her guilt. Would he tarnish his reputation as being merciful when here, to be merciful would be a clear injustice? 
Are we using our brains? To be merciful in this moment would be a clear injustice to the betrayed, would it not? What about, what about hubs? What about hubs back home? How is mercy gonna establish justice for him? There's a bit of a bind here, isn't there, for Jesus? Would he be merciful? To be merciful here would not only show disregard for justice for the betrayed, but disregard to obedience to the commands of God in Deuteronomy 22. So if she has mercy, he has no regard for justice. And he's telling us to disobey Mosaic law, okay? So if he condemns, he'll turn us his invitation. So it's a double, it's a double trap, right? But then there's a second, or if he lets her go, right, then he's not you know, doing the law. So there's a second layer to this trap, though, as well, a cultural layer, a political layer. If Jesus agrees that according to the law, she should be stoned and affirms the violence due her and oversees the death of this woman by the hands of holy men, right? This creates another problem for Jesus. Part of Rome's kind of exerting their power over occupied people is Rome would say to any occupied people, your laws no longer matter. The only laws that matter here are Pax Romana, right? The Roman law, and you can no longer uh, treat people according to your laws, they must now be treated according to our laws. So Rome took away the ability of indigenous people to murder, to, to follow out their rules, to follow out their cultural norms on all sorts of levels. Thus the tension in the Jewish people when it came to the Roman occupation. So according to Rome, Jews could not kill each other. This is the exact same reason the Pharisees had to bring Jesus to Herod, to Romans, to have him killed because they could not do it on their own. So if Jesus says she deserves death, she should be stoned, and these guys could then go to the Roman Empire and say, hey, we stoned this girl only because Jesus told us to, and now he's in political trouble. So do you see the double conniving, malicious, like super premeditated trap this is? We got this guy. No matter what he does, he will be, we'll be able to point out his guilt and pull other people to rally against him, right? So side note, they, this kind of notion, okay, this rallying other people to a condemning position towards a person, this rallying of other people towards a cond condemning condition of, towards other people, right? That is what the religious spirit always does. Stay with me, okay? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, patience, kindness, long-suffering. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, y'all, amplifies and brings attention to reasons to love. A, re a religious spirit, the fruit of the religious spirit, amplifies and brings attention to reasons to condemn. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit calls our hearts to love others in the righteousness given by Jesus. The religious spirit um, in the religious spirit, we call others to condemn other people in defense of our own self-righteousness, sorry. So their plan was foolproof. No matter what he did, we have him, okay? And what does Jesus do? Broad starts doodling in the sand. What on earth is this? Okay, so if you're a Christian, if you grew up in church, there's all sorts of hypotheses about what was he writing? Everyone wants to know, what was Jesus writing, right? And, and some people are gonna point out, well, he was, you know, he was just pointing out that everyone's made of dust. You guys are made of dust and there's dust and okay, maybe, I don't know. Or, or the one that I really, it's funny, is like, no, no, no. He was writing the names of the women the Pharisees had affairs with. Oh, right, <laughs> right? So listen, listen. If it were important, it would be in the text. 
So I feel no reason to hypothesize about what he was writing, okay? However, it does seem that he's stalling. It seems that Jesus is allowing a bit of time in between impulse to condemn and the action of condemning. It seems that Jesus is trying to put space in between the anger and the hatred we feel in our hearts and us acting on that anger and that hatred. So next time you have this overwhelming impulse to just rain down righteous indignation on someone that you know is guilty, just go draw a picture. Just go doodle. Seriously, I mean, what else can we get from this other than Jesus saying to us in moments where you feel rage and hate and anger rising up inside your heart, breathe, take a walk so that the whole world doesn't seem to be revolving around your personal sense of offense and maybe come back to the situation tomorrow and talk to that person like a human being. I don't know. I'm just shooting from the hip here. So, after he doodles in the ground, totally sucker punches these guys, man. Like they never saw it coming, right? He says, let the sinless cast the first stone. Do you know why that's a sucker punch in this moment? (laughs) Because their arms were waving in the air, drawing all the attention they could to. She's a sinner! Sinner! Their arms were in the air. And they were trying to bring all the attention they could to the guilt of this woman. And so he's just like, right in, the, right in the stomach, right? Their arms are up here, totally sucker punches him. He says, all right. He doesn't negate her sin. He doesn't say, well, guys, you know, she didn't go to a nice school like you. You know, like, you know, she, you know. No, she's wrong. He doesn't even address that. You know, he says, all right, let the sinless among you cast the first stone. So, so, Let me just, I just want to give you a trick here. There's a trick, there's a Christian trick. A lot of Christians know this trick. A lot of Christians live by it. They don't even know it. It's awesome. Like it's basically like cultural Christianity 101. If you never want to hear the voice of God, write this down. You're going to want this, right? If I never, a lot of people, you don't, you don't know this, but you guys, we live by this. If you never want to hear the voice of God, all you have to do is make as much noise as you can about other people's sins. It's, it's church, it's just, I mean, it's like, it's literally, they teach this in church community all the time. And the way they do it is you're like, well, you know, I got this, they need prayer for this. And then we heap up contempt. And you know, you, this person is less valuable than us, but let's just pray for them, you know, they should be saved from their idiocy, you know? If, if you, if you, if you want to create a safeguard between your heart and hearing the voice of God, all you have to do is make as much noise as you possibly can about it. Don't let anything pass, y'all. Nothing. Don't let anyone get away with anything, right? Now, of course, you're not going to, like, tell it to their face. We're not Neanderthals, right? No. You just tell it to your husband, your friends, your wife. Maybe post it on social media, you know. Surefire way to avoid ever feeling the voice of God, the conviction of God in our own hearts. Whatever you do, don't allow your mind to see them as fellow humans desperately in need of grace, right? That wrecks the whole party. Whole party's over if you see them like that, right? 
Y'all, I want to beg you to refuse to participate in condemnation parties. Everyone feels so good after a condemnation party because what are we doing? We're just frothing up about our own rightness. Refuse to participate in condemnation parties. All those things are is bathing in the sun of our own self-righteousness, right? And we all feel really good after it and it completely helps us to avoid ever hearing the voice of God. And apparently, according to this text, Jesus will have none of it in his house. Jesus tends to never allow us to get by thinking about things or doing things without realizing our own position, right? He seems intent on revealing to us not other issues, but the issues of our own hearts. And that's exactly what he does in this circumstance. He brings the situation out of legalese and theory and ethereal and brings it directly to their hearts. That's what he always does. And it's important for us, again, to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't legitimize their condemnation, right? But he also doesn't negate the guilt of the women. He doesn't defend her. And his last words are so important. He calls her to a higher standard of living. This is what um, N.T. Wright says about this particular passage. The story certainly doesn't mean, as some people have tried to make it mean, that adultery doesn't matter. That's not the point at all. Jesus' last words to the woman are extremely important. If she's been forgiven, she's been rescued from imminent death and must now live by that forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Are we listening? On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter and that God has chosen to set it aside in Christ. Jesus forgives this woman, but he has to answer the Pharisees, right? He doesn't defend her. He doesn't minimize, minimize or rationalize her sin. She's blew it. There's no getting, no getting around it. So he addresses a whole different completely issue. He addresses the willingness in the Pharisees to condemn her in the first place. That's what he gets at. That's what he's getting at when he says whoever is sinless and how. Right? And I, well, first of all, I love this. I love that it mentions that the older guys drop their stones first. Right? And, 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 and it took the younger guys like a little longer to be like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, it took them a little longer to be checked by reality. Right? And you just hear, you know, rocks hitting the ground, the sand in this instance. And I can imagine every time a rock hits the ground, I can, I can see this woman wincing thinking the next sound is going to be a rock cracking against my head. So he answers their question by doing what he always does. He refuses to deal in generalities and stereotypes and categories, and he deals with the issue behind the noise they were making. And he reminds them of something that religious people love to forget. All of us are broken vessels. All of us. Every single one of us in this room are broken. Every leader in this nation is broken. Huh? Every pastor preaching from a pulpit today is broken. All of us are. I am broken. All of us are broken, right? All of us fallen short of reflecting the glory of God to the community around us. And Jesus gives them the opportunity to be honest. I mean, what if they weren't? <laughs> what if they were like, mm, ah. 
you know? They're checked. Reality settles in on them when it comes from the voice of Jesus. And they drop the rocks. They walk away. If they wouldn't have, if they had avoided honesty in that moment, guess what would have happened? More bloodshed, more violence, someone's daughter killed, someone's sister killed. But they're checked in that moment. Did she deserve it? She did. According to law, I know it seems very crazy and harsh to us, but according to the Old Testament, Zach Law, Deuteronomy 22, you can look it up. She deserved it. But Jesus seems to think that our own brokenness should inform the way we deal with other people's sins. There should be a moment of checking in our spirits when we feel a willingness and a liberty to condemn others. And Jesus seems to think there is a relationship in your ability to admit that you need grace. There should be a relationship between that and your willingness to condemn others. The scene ends with a woman left alone with Jesus. She was left alone. Let's think about this. She was left alone with the only person who had the right to condemn her. She was left alone with the God she had rebelled against in the action in the first place. She was left alone with the one whom Revelation says is the only one who is worthy to unlock the scroll of judgment on the earth. She's left alone with the one who, above every single else one of us, right, had the right to condemn and judge her. She's alone with this man. And don't miss this. We're told that Jesus speaks to her first. And what does he say? He protects her. He shields her from the consequences of her own foolishness. And she said, he says to her, woman, where are, some translations might say, your accusers? He asks her a question, has no one condemned you? And she says, no. And then Jesus says to her something that I hope every one of our hearts hear this morning. Neither do I condemn you. And in one move, the most brilliant man who ever walked on the face of the earth confounds the proud, <laughs> rebukes the self-righteous, evades their silly trap and extends grace and mercy to the broken. One move. And to every one of us today proclaims the reason he came. Because he came, the God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to, in order that the world might be saved through him. And in a way, in this one move, Jesus is modeling what he offers to every single one of us in this room who would dare to believe that God could be a God that loves and forgives like that. So the, the tendency with a passage like this, y'all, is to moralize it. What do I mean by that? See, what, what we normally do is we put other people in the woman's shoes, right? And we're, because we're church people, if you grew up in church, right, you kind of put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes, right? Okay, that's, what, that's kind of the point. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't condemn people that we feel are morally repugnant. And yes, that's, that's a takeaway. Yes, absolutely, you shouldn't. That's right. That's absolutely part of it. Undeniably part of what we're supposed to get. But Jesus was not simply a moral teacher, okay? He, he didn't simply come to tell us how we ought to act. The reason it was so easy for the Pharisees to condemn others is that they themselves, I think, felt condemned by God 
And in their efforts to cover up that deep insecurity, in their efforts to uh, cover up that deep sense of disqualification, part of that effort included insisting on their own rightness, right? And how do you insist on your own rightness? Well, you obey strict rules, you do all the right things, you say the right things, you act the right way. And the lowest hanging fruit, y'all, on insisting on your own rightness is pointing out everyone else's wrongness. Lowest hanging fruit when it comes to trying to establish your own sense of rightness, right? And in that angsty inner atmosphere of feeling deeply disqualified, they would gladly become a part of condemning someone else, right? Because in that moment, their own disqualification and sense of brokenness seems lessened. Is that not how judgment and condemnation works? Absolutely, right? I point out what's wrong with you so that I don't have to sit with what could potentially be wrong with me. And y'all, the emotional payoff of taking a condemning attitude towards someone else, the emotional payoff of that can be so great that condemnation has become a sport today. Right? Some people, you never feel more secure and justified than when I'm spewing hate and slander and malice and inviting other people to do the same. It's a party, right? And at least for a moment, right, the noise of pointing out other people's wrongs silences the voice in our own heart saying, yeah, but you know, that one time I did that and maybe my thoughts aren't super kind, I'm not sure, right? All right, so let's, let's chat for a second. Everyone okay? Breathe. Okay. History shows us that those who are convinced of their own rightness and ignore their own ability to be wrong are those who can easily commit acts of violence and horror towards others. Can I just, let me say it one more time. I wanna be sure we, we, we grapple with this for a second. History shows us that those who are convinced of their own rightness, right? They're convinced they are right, right? They are also ignoring the idea that they could be wrong, right? It's those people who can be the most violent towards us. That's why it said that religious evil is of the most hideous kind. Do you know why? Because people who are hateful and violent in the name of religion do it with the approval of their own conscience. And therefore, religious hate and religious violence tends to be, if you look through the pages of history, one of the most death-filled, blood-stained epochs of the world done in the name of religion, right? We've said this before, y'all, but it just feels today like we need to say it again. There were Nazi clergy in Germany who defended the eradication of the Jews with the Bible. Manhandled, hijacked the Bible, cut and paste and pulled things out to affirm their own political agenda, right? History in this nation is no exception is full of people who are willing to manhandle the Bible to justify slavery, to justify hatred, bigotry, bitterness, racism, even murder. All sorts of people will gladly take the Bible, right? And if we were to sit here and just name all the civil wars, all the death, all the conquest and violence that's been done in the name of religion, we'd be here for weeks. There's just not, we'd just be here. I mean, there's just unending page after page after page. The, his, the pages of history are dripping with the blood of those killed in the name of religion, right? All religions. And you'd be hard pressed to find any religion which in its history there has not been bloodshed over, right? Despite 
such blatant and irrefutable New Testament evidence against hate and against racism and against violence, right? I mean, the Bible's literally gonna call you to love those who hate you, okay? So despite that fact, Christianity is no exception in history. Ever heard the, you know, Spanish Inquisition, right? Look, look at the history of England with the Catholicism and Protestant history. I mean, bloodshed all over the place. It's been, and, and people will hijack, sinful men will hijack the Bible with malicious purposes. It seems, y'all, that the human heart will never run out of things, uh, of reasons to hate and look down on others. Right? And they will reach out and try to grab everything they can grab to justify those feelings, whatever it is, right? So whole sections, almost done with this bit, okay? Whole sections of history have missed the forest for the trees when it comes to what it means to being a Christian when they have found themselves backing hatred and violence in the name of God. Missed forest for the trees. Okay, and the one thing that I wanna just let us sit with before we get out of here today is this. When we read this passage, the place that I find myself in more often today is I am the woman caught in adultery. It's me who deserves wrath and violence. I have hated, I have lusted, I have committed violence to relationships to preserve rightness in my own eyes, right? And if God were to end me now, it would be just. Jesus isn't saying, just be sweet and don't be judgy and then I'll love you. He's showing us that he came to rescue us because we are the ones who have sinned and deserve condemnation, y'all. When Jesus becomes only a moral teacher instead of a redeemer and a savior, all of a sudden we find it very easy to condemn others who can't make the cut. We chatting? Because if he came to forgive sins, he came to redeem us from the curse of the law. If he came for redemption and restoration, then hate and violence and condemnation has categorically been removed from the tool belt of the Christian. We don't get to use that stuff, right? The love of God will always confound the proud, those who think they deserve it, and grace the broken, those who know they don't. The only real difference between the woman and the Pharisees is that she knew she was a sinner. And the Pharisees seemed blind to that fact. In fact, if they had been brazen and refused to acknowledge that fact, they would have stoned her to death on the spot, right? Until we see, number one, ourselves in the place of that broken, self-destructive woman, and then number two, until we see ourselves as receiving the unmerited, radical, scandalous, reason-confounding love of God, until we understand that we are her, we will never be able to extend the kind of radical forgiveness and love towards other people. Okay, simply because this, you cannot give what you do not possess. Okay, so almost done. If you find within yourself an overwhelming urge to condemn if you find within yourself an inability to entertain the notion of free forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration, the problem isn't that you aren't trying hard enough. The problem is that you are blind to the glory of God and Jesus saying to your own heart, neither do I condemn you, right? That is the issue, right? If we, when we see that, if we can hear God saying to our own hearts, neither do I condemn you, it becomes very hard to condemn others, right? And this is at least in part why it says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
It's saying not only are we saved from the condemnation of God, but we are saved from a life of condemning other people. God has chosen to display his glory by freely giving undeserved compassion for all by sacrificing himself for the guilty. His love is scandalous, it's illogical, and it will always confound our own sense of rightness and stretch our own understanding of justice, like what Josh talked about a couple weeks, right? The hope of all who call on the name of Jesus is that mercy will triumph over judgment. That's the hope. That's our hope. So let's chat before we get out of here real quick. Look at me. I know what's going on in the headlines right now. I know the culture moment that we're in, right? And if you're a Christian, I'm gonna call you to something right now that is absolutely controversial. I'm gonna call you to something that I, 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 it's probably gonna make you cringe. I'll be honest, right? Some of you might even leave this church, right? I'm gonna call you to something that's absolutely absurd. You ready? I'm gonna call you to love every person. That's not controversial, Chris. We're Christians. No, it's because you haven't thought about it. You're thinking of the people that you think deserve love. I just said every person. There's nothing more controversial than something like that today. The call of being a Christian means that we are to love every person. So let me be clear. Surely I don't mean those idiots, whatever the category that just popped in your mind, right? Right, let me be more specific. Strangers? Yeah. Okay, but what if they're like super sketchy looking? Yeah. You don't have to give them your social security number, just be kind, right? All right. What if they're like, what if, what if they're like stuck in mid-90s fashion? Do I need to love those people? Watch it. Yeah, 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 you gotta love those people too. Oh, what if they're like super unhealthy? Do I love them? Yeah. Okay, all right, well, those are all superficial things. What about like differences in thinking? What if they disagree with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah those guys too. Oh, what if they disagree with me about Christianity and are really mean about it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so to love them too. Okay, okay, what if they claim to be a Christian, but then they have all these heretical ideas about Jesus, like they refuse his divinity, and they're like, they like defend like really trendy sins. Yeah, 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 you're called to love them too. Yeah, but what if they're like, Jesus wasn't the son of God, yeah, called to love him, called to love him. Okay, okay, but shouldn't we confront that? Yeah, in love, you speak the truth in love. In relationships, okay, okay. What about, what if they're like from a different country and they think super differently than me and they have super antiquated ideas about male authority and their skin's different? Yeah, yeah, you're called to love them because they're a person made in the image of God. Imago Dei, okay? Okay, all right, all right. But what, what if their skin is different and they believe that God's angry and, 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 but their God's a different God and, they, and they've made it their claim to kill Christians. Their declared intent, they wanna kill us, Chris. You mean jihadist? Yeah, yeah, you're called to love them. Because you ever met Paul? His name was Saul, basically a jihadist. 
killing Christians. Yeah, called to love them. Let me be more clear. I don't feel like I'm being clear enough. What about really obnoxious Republicans who think Trump is the best thing since sliced bread? Yeah. You're called to love them. Christ died for all people, right? Not just those who we think deserve it. What about angry liberals? Christ died for all people. Not just those we think deserve it. All right, Chris, you're going to make me ask it because you haven't addressed this. What about protesters and rioters and looters and people that are burning things to the ground, causing more death and violence? Yeah, you're called to love those for whom Christ has died. What about corrupt police, Chris, who abuse their authority? Yeah, Christ died for all people, not just those you think deserve it. All right, Chris, what about blatantly racist people? Yeah, you're called to love them too because Christ died for all people, no matter if we think they deserve it. This doesn't make sense. That's right. Welcome to the kingdom. The love of God has and always will obliterate the dividing wall of hostility. Whether that wall of hostility be between man and man, man and woman, or man and God. And as a Christian, we believe that nothing else has that kind of strength. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe and it brings kings to their knees It melts the hearts of the proud and it breaks the chains of those in darkness. If you are a Christian, quit acting like the love of God has no relevance in the conversation. It is not a cop-out to say that the gospel is the only thing that can end hate and racism in the world today. Secondly, has anyone's mind ever really been changed by someone yelling at them? Has that kind of tool of hate and guilt and shame ever really worked? I mean, we know intuitively the most powerful thing in the universe is self-sacrificing love. It's what every movie's about of all time, right? We also know that shame and fear and guilt and anger cannot motivate anyone towards the right course for a long period of time. We are led with the most strength when we are led by love. And Chris, you're talking about mustering a whole lot of warm fuzzies for people who don't deserve it. No, I'm not. I'm talking about freely giving away what you have received. I'm talking about supposedly to be a Christian is to drink deeply of the love of God. I'm just talking about giving that away. Freely giving what you have received. From the landscape, y'all, it would seem for many Christians, God is simply too liberal with his love for humanity. Christian or not, we tend to excel in finding reasons we don't have to love people. Christian or not, we tend to excel in finding reasons we can justifiably condemn others. Don't hear what I am not saying. There are 
horrible injustices in the world that God calls us to address as the people of God and exert influence over them as we can, right? Over and over again in the Old Testament, defend the rights of the poor, the widows, the orphans, those that are left out and looked over. Judging an action, an attitude as wrong and condemnable thing is different than judging a person as condemnable and irredeemable. Right? The people who felt the sting of God's rebuke in this story are those who were trying to justify a condemning attitude in the name of God. If you are trying to justify contempt for others in the name of Jesus, whether it's hating a politician or a cop or a rioter or LGBT or people who hate other people based on superficial reasons, if you are entertaining violence in your heart, Jesus would say to you, that is not my spirit. Amen. And that is not my tools. And that's not of me, right? You will not find Jesus as an ally when it comes to condemning other people. We live in a time where hate is trendy. Sociologists have dubbed our time the age of outrage. And y'all, there will never be a shortage of things to be angry over. And some things we should be upset over. Things that should send us to our knees, begging God for mercy and that his kindness would lead us to repentance. But we can never succumb to believing that using the weapons of the enemy can achieve establishing the kingdom of God in the earth today. It's not how it worked with our hearts and it certainly isn't gonna how it worked today. If you want me to tell you who you should hate, I will not do it. If you want me to tell you that you should hate protesters because they're rioting and looting, I will not do it. Okay? There's no category that I will tell you that you should hate as a Christian. Right? God loves them just like he loves me. They are walking in darkness just like I used to be. And I have to believe that God's love can change them if indeed it was God's love that changed me in the first place. Possessing that kind of hope in many ways is what it means to be a Christian. So you, you probably don't know Daryl Davis because stories like his don't, get, don't sell papers or get clicks. Anyone know Daryl Davis? Daryl Davis was a black man who decided to do something about the absurdity of racism in this country. Guess how he took his stand? Bombing a KKK rally? No. Putting arsenic in their drinks? No. No. No, he loved on them. He went to KKK meetings. <laughs> he got drinks with them. Went to bars with them. Talked to any of them that would talk to him. Is that not absurd? I mean, is that not the most dangerous, horrifying thing you've ever heard of? Did they deserve his kindness? No, absolutely not. They, did it change anything? It did. Over 200 KKK members dropped their cloth over the span of 20 years because of the kindness of this man, right? Yeah, you should, you should look him up. It's actually a really interesting story. There's all sorts of interviews and, and things like that. Loving everybody is very much controversial. The gospel is scandalous, y'all. Scandalous. And it will always offend those who think they deserve God's love and it will always save and restore those that know they don't. Amen. Yeah. I, 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 I honestly, I don't care what side of the fence you're on. 
But if you have a stone in your hand, Jesus has things to say to you today. Hope that God's love can saturate every heart, that they too would know the gift of repentance and faith in a loving God by removing our guilt, by freeing us from darkness is characteristically Christian. Hope for all. Hope for all. His banner over us is, yeah, what? Love. Our self-righteousness. His banner over us is our self-righteousness. His banner over us is our political party. His banner over us is our high moral ground. No, his banner over us is love. His banner over us is love, y'all. If you're a Christian, his banner over you is love. Say it louder for the people in the back. It's the simple things we forget, man. That's the kind of love we are called to as Holy Spirit-filled Christians. And I'll tell you this, you do not stand a chance at doing without the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Amen. Let's stand and pray together.